Welcome to the Infinite Love Podcast, a place where we talk about the power of love and its creative expression in our lives. We talk about all things related to growth, positivity, and kindness. And I am your host, Corinne Kamara. Episode 85, Falling in Love with Your Playfulness. Thomas Edwards Jr. has an amazing life story about following his passion and the power of fun. He's a creator and author of The One-Up Effect. Thomas is a playfulness coach and innovative visionary of maximizing fulfillment in life. Using his unique game-like mythology for high-level transformation, Thomas works with professionals, leaders, and businesses who seek to level up their purpose, joy, passion, and achievement. We all need more playfulness in our lives, especially during this period in our world. So let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to the Infinite Love Podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest, Thomas. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I always start out the podcast talking about what your love journey is like what is what were the catalysts in your life that helped you become the man you are today and has catapulted you into your life's work and it's a big question so yeah. feel free to just tell us the most significant aspects of your journey yeah um it, it is it is a very broad question and so I'll, I'll probably be jumping around and it'll be a part of a, a bigger story but to directly answer your question i mean the biggest catalyst is being a dad you know, I have, I have a four-year-old daughter and uh, she finding out that uh, I was going to be a dad was like the, was the best worst day of my life. And I'll explain why later. Um, but, you know, having her in my life, she is sort of a muse to me because I see her grow and play and explore and the innocence and the blind courage and the curiosity really inspired me to take a look at my life and ask the question of why can't I do that now at 36 years old? Why, why did I choose to have that stop when I turned 18 and was on my own, you know? And so for me, one of the biggest things I noticed about her is that like, she doesn't know anything but unconditional love. She doesn't know about dislike, except for what she may not like to eat. <laughs> but she doesn't think about dislike or hate or anything. Um, everything is is with love, you know. She even like has her tantrums with love, you know. Nothing about her is with ill intent, and so it really pushed me to think about how to really love and honor myself on a consistent basis, um, especially during times of challenge and adversity. Um, and I would say the second thing that was a huge catalyst of love has been uh, my recovery. Um, you know, I, I, and I'll go into, the, this is a great segue to go into the journey, but, you know, I, I struggled a lot with um, alcohol and substance abuse for a long time because I didn't know how to manage my emotions. And I would use and abuse those substances to escape and numb myself because I couldn't handle it. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, you know, God came into my life and, and relieved that obsession to escape uh, just a few years ago. It opened up the doors for me to really connect with a purpose that's greater than my own, that's based on something greater than my own self-will. Um, and that has been a daily practice for me um, that I continue to explore and, and enjoy. But to really see like how that even came together, you know, I, you know, I grew up in a, a Jamaican household. You know, I'm first generation American born, um, you know, and when you're from a Caribbean household, the 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 path is is pretty much set for you you know it's it's, it's get an education uh you know work hard get a job make money save money buy a house like all about security right and, and you get that security and then and then you can enjoy life you know and that's what my parents did that's what you know my grandparents did and my great-grandparents did it so it just was natural for them to pass that along to me you know and there was a lot of pressure on me being first generation american you know i was the golden child and very influential, uh, very influenced. I mean, you know, and so I, I tried really hard at school and I was, you know, doing well. And 
I was bullied a lot um, growing up and I would try to go home and talk about these things and, and my parents would basically just dismiss it, you know, just say, don't worry about that, like focus on your education. But they didn't understand that like I'm being bullied, <laughs> you know, like how do I, how do I handle this? Ignoring it can be part of the solution, but it's not the whole solution. And I, and I didn't know how to deal with that. And so I acquiesced to the bullying and tried to be cool. But, you know, so at least for me and my story, it didn't work out. You know, I just wasn't cool enough. And so I still never got accepted by the cool kids. But now I'm not, I'm too, I'm not nerdy enough to be with the geeks either. So I kind of just got myself out of that group and I was left alone uh, with no group to really hang out. And that, that was a lot of my life, you know, through grade school. And um, then, you know, girls came into the fold and, and I was just a total mess. <laughs> Uh, hopeless romantic, you know, trying to, anytime, you know, a girl would give me any type of uh, attention, I would pour my heart into, you know, showing my appreciation, gratitude. And I realized in reflection, it got unhealthy because I was uh, sacrificing my, my very identity to please and, uh, and, and make someone else happy. And what that did was it actually uh, made her forget why she liked me, you know, she, she, she couldn't remember why she was with me because I was a different person. I behaved so differently once I got into a relationship. And so there was a lot of heartbreak, a lot of heartache, um, uh, a lot of just unhealthy relationships ending. And um, eventually I, I thought I found the one uh, I was in my first year of college in my sophomore year, I, I thought I was ready to propose, you know, and a week out of just getting her parents blessing, uh, she told me that she cheated on me and it rocked me. You know, I remember being quiet on the phone for like two minutes while she was you know, crying and apologizing. I hung up the phone, never talked to her again. I went into the bathroom and I cried for 30 minutes. And I remember coming out of the bathroom and I said, I'm never going to let this happen to me ever again. You know, and I started this journey of how I can become a better, more confident person. And that's when I got into the world of personal development. You know, the first book I got was Seven Habits of High Effective People. And that just opened the door for me to be a total sponge. And then through a series of events of just trying to uh, transform myself, I ended up graduating from college. I wanted to be a video game producer. Uh, I minored in Japanese. You know, I love just the idea, just, you know, the Japanese culture plus video games for me was a win. And so I, I devoted my college career to that. And then 2008 hit, market sucked. <laughs> Job market was just awful. No jobs were really available, particularly in the video game industry because they were going through a big transition. So decided to look for a way for me to maybe even create my own thing. And uh, I, I learned through my experience that I was really good at my at social skills. I, I had a lot of, I developed really great social skills. I, can learn, I learned how to create a great lifestyle for myself, how to um, be social, create a network, and I was more comfortable around women, you know? And so I decided to create a whole brand around that in the business. It was called The Professional Wingman. And uh, it, you know, quickly, I say quickly, but it, I mean, it took months. Um, but even that was pretty quick, but it, it became uh, a pretty a big sensation. Um, you know, I got, I was, I went from, like I was posting content online and one day I was still living with my parents. My mom knocked on the door and she's like, my neighbor read about you in the Wall Street Journal. And I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And then I look and my article, you know, the article that I was in was like the second most read and shared article next to Obamacare. This is like 2009. Yeah. Wow. So, so I went from like servicing three clients in Boston to now servicing clients in Sierra Leone, Shanghai, clients in New York wanted to work with me, Miami. I mean, I, it was, it, it felt overnight that where things just blew up and the press train hit, you know, and so uh, all the media wanted to work with me, talk with me, do videos, articles, all these things. And it just, it, it just blew up, you know, and, you know, it, it got to a point where like, I didn't even have to try, you know, like it was just so, my business was great. Um, it got to a point where I ended up moving to New York because it just felt more centrally located for me to travel and, and do a lot of media stuff. I ended up finding, meeting my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, and life was good. I mean, it got to the point where I couldn't even really go out a lot in New York because someone would recognize me because they saw me somewhere in something, and they thought it was really cool. And I was loving that life. I thought that I finally had created the life 
that I thought I wanted. You know, uh, I was finally one of the cool kids and I was successful. I was making money. Um, I had security. And so my parents, even though they had no idea what I was doing, they were happy. <laughs> they were happy, right? They're yeah. proud. Their, their, their son is doing well and they could talk about it. You know, they yeah. could talk about it with, their, with their friends. And so uh, it reached a climax when I was asked to be on the Steve Harvey show. Uh, I was told that he himself, you know, saw me and wanted me to come on, be in the show and, and mm -hmm. help him out with the situation. And for me, I thought that was a really high honor because, yeah. You know, this guy has written a couple books on, on on dating himself and relationships. And so I figured he would just kind of corner that with his own show, you know, but he mm -hmm. decided he wanted to bring me in. And I, that was amazing. So they flew me out to Chicago. Um, I ended up being on the segment, absolutely crushed it. Um, you know, he himself was impressed because uh, mm -hmm. at the time I was, I was young for a dating expert, you know. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it just was great. And so I went to back to the hotel to a rooftop bar i'm celebrating with all these friends the people around me people i knew i didn't know and, and i remember thinking to myself man like i'm on the top of the world like i'm being recognized as one of the best in the world at what i do my yeah. clients are successful i'm making money people love me like this is amazing you know and for a moment i had this feeling i never felt it before it was this emptiness i didn't feel fulfilled with all of that. And I didn't, I didn't expect that to happen. It caught me off guard and it caught me so off guard. I panicked. I didn't know like how to feel or, or, or what to think of it. Didn't know how to describe it. Certainly didn't know how to talk to anyone about it because I just learned to kind of handle stuff by myself. Like I don't, we just didn't talk much about feelings in my, in my family, you know, for better or for worse. And so it really weighed heavily on me. And that started a, a very, uh, deep and gradual descent into depression and then eventually got into alcohol and then drug abuse because I just couldn't handle what was going on. I, I lost my direction. You know, I thought I was living the life and I didn't realize I was living the life that someone else wanted for me, not the life that I wanted. And I struggled a lot with that. And then eventually, you know, in that time I got married and then my wife got pregnant and the best worst day in my life happened because I've always wanted to be a dad. I always remember that, you know, from being 15, you know, 15, 16 years old, like I'm going to be a dad and I'm going to be an, an amazing dad. And so when that happened, I was like, it was great. And it was also the worst day because the identity that I had created for myself known as the wingman uh, died. And I didn't know how to handle that. And I spent the next year and a half actively mourning the death of that identity you know, with more alcohol, more drugs, more delinquent behavior, more irrational thinking and, and, and just emotional suppression. And it got to the point where, you know, my wife was like, listen, like, I love you. And this is not the marriage that I want to be in, you know, like something in our marriage needs to change or I'll have to make a change. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but she did word it that way. She made it clear not to blame me or point the finger at me, even though it was very clear that I was a huge part of the problem. So I, I internalized it that way. Mm -hmm. And I realized in that moment that what I was equipped with led me to where I am in that moment, where I was in that moment. And I knew that how I was equipped was not going to get me out. And so it was the first time where I actually said, you know, I need outside support. I need to start talking about this. I need to figure it out. And just like I went all in in personal development, I went all in in support. You know, I got two therapists, a couple therapists, a personal therapist, I got a psychiatrist, I got an addiction doctor. I did spiritual retreats, leadership retreats. I had my own personal coach. I mean, I, I, I did it all. And <clears throat> my life would incrementally get better with the occasional 90-day slip-up, you know, where I would just lose it, you know, and just not be able to kind of manage the capacity I was able to build, that momentum that I built over 90 days. And then one day, um, it was January 12th, 2019, I'm still clinging on to the identity of wingman, you know, because I just didn't know what else I was going to do with myself. You know, being the wingman was all I knew out of college. And so I was going to go see a client. I just finished playing Uno with my wife. And I remember opening the door and I, I personally believe my higher power came and shut the door, <laughs> but the door had closed. And I was like, I don't, I have a bad, weird feeling about this. Like, I don't feel like I shouldn't be going out. And my wife was like, just go, like, you're just doing your job. Go, you know, do what you got to do and then come back home. And I was like, all right. I go out 
And I walk into that bar to meet with my client and I blacked out just instantly. What? Didn't have this was the first time I ever actually blacked out having not had a drink. <laughs> you know? Um, of course, like drinking and, and drugging ensued, but it was the first time where I just consciously blacked out. The, the emotions just got to such a, a, a point where the, tr the the blackout trigger just induced. And I came to around 6 a.m. Standing outside my apartment, thinking to myself, like, what the F just happened, you know? And I know, I knew that I was in trouble because we had, my wife and I had agreed on a boundary. If I had got home too late, I was not going to be welcome in the house, you know? And so uh, bless her for holding that boundary and saying, like, you can't, you can't be in here. And so what does any other person who's struggling with alcohol and substance abuse do when they're feeling all this? Well, they go to the bar. That's what I did. You know, I went to the bar and what was supposed to be a safe haven for me became such like a just uh, a victim session. You know, I was crying mm -hmm. and talking about woe is me. Oh, you know, gosh. like my, my wife is awful and blah, blah, blah. And, and it just, I had, I had friends around me, you know, but I just, it was just a mess, you know. And tr later on that night, I tried to get back into the house. That was also a bigger mess. And then I really blacked out. And I believe in that time when I blacked out to when I woke up on January 14th, was when my higher power came in and said enough, like you're done, you know, you don't need to do this anymore. And I remember waking up, having this strange feeling, going back to sleep because it was the middle of the night. I woke up, I woke up in a black and like in darkness. I didn't know where I was, what I was doing, but I was so scared that I just like went back to sleep. I just didn't want to think about what could have happened. But I ended up waking. I was in a hotel close around the corner. But I remember walking. Um, along the shores of Venice Beach that, that morning. And it was very strange. And the only way I can describe it is if you've ever seen the, mate, the first Matrix, where Neo is unplugged and they're working on his body. And Neo talks, asks Morpheus, you know, why do my eyes hurt? And Morpheus says, you've never used them before. That was how I felt that day. I was- Reborn. I was reborn. I was living in a world that I didn't recognize and I was scared because I didn't know how to live in it. I was worried, you know? And so uh, I, you know, a few days later, I was able to work my way back into the house. And then I ended up uh, working with, talking with my, my uh, therapist and my addiction doctor. And then something just clicked. And it was like, you know, I need a spiritual program. I need yeah. something where I can't just allow my self-will to dictate how I live my life because my thinking right now is not in a place that's going to be conducive to positive emotion, positive energy, and positive behavior. Mm -hmm. So um, that was when I found myself in, in the recovery rooms and all the things that I had learned from my therapists, psychiatrists, my coaches, my, my you know, mentors, the reason why I incrementally was working was because I didn't have the, the energy of faith, surrender, and grace on it. And when I was able to wrap that around, you know, through the spiritual program, everything worked, just worked. It's like, it's like yeah. holding a cup of coffee, right? You mm -hmm. hold a cup of coffee and the, and the hot coffee represented all the stuff that I, material that I learned, all the things that I learned, but the cap was on there. So all the steam mm -hmm. and all the heat was just in there. And it was just like, spirituality was just me lifting the cap. And everything just opened, just opened up for me. I love that. I mean, it's so true. I feel like, I mean, and this is kind of, you know, I, I say love, infinite love, but essentially it's that, right? It's that yeah. spirituality. It's that connection because love is that bigger word that means so many di different things, yeah. but it's connecting to, to your own surrender, to your own peace, to your own soul and heart and going towards what your soul's purpose is. Yeah. And uh, yours is strong. I mean, your soul was like, oh, we're not, we're just going to take you out. Yeah. 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 You know, and I'm so grateful. Like I'm, I'm one of the fortunate ones that have, has not had to struggle mm -hmm. with the urge to escape, you know, the, the, the alcohol and the drugs were just symptomatic behaviors of a deeper issue, which was, I could, I did not handle my emotions. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to really identify process and manage them over time. And that's yeah. what I've had, I've had the opportunity to learn. And so I'm just so fortunate that I haven't had to worry about craving, you know, the, you know, all that stuff, you know, all the substances, you know, I'm very fortunate. And it's given me the space to really be aware of like who I can really be. Right. Now, now where playfulness comes in is I, 
my life was getting better, you know? Now the, the cap was off the cup of coffee, steam was coming out, my life was getting bigger. Uh, I, was, I was getting, I was feeling less conflicted and I was showing up in all areas of my life, you know, to a certain extent. Something was still missing though. You know, I was, I was looking at my life and I was realizing that like, I just wasn't, I wasn't having fun. You know, like I, everything that I was doing was based on obligation. And listen, like I, I'll be the first to say, I created all these responsibilities. You know, I'm the one that chose to be a husband. I'm the one that chose to become a dad. I, I'm the one that chose to start my own business and, and all these things. And so I'm not trying to escape those, those responsibilities. I just want to find a way to enjoy them. You know, and I didn't know how to do that. And I just thought to myself, well, what do I do that's fun? You know, (laughs) and and I looked and it was like nothing, you know what I mean? So, so I decided to, you know, spend 90 days actively pursuing what was fun for me. And it made me reconnect to my first true love, which was video games. And I remember picking up the controller and it was almost like an electric charge going through my body. I just went, I just like portaled back to when I was like a 13 year old kid in my bedroom, having like this uncontrollable fun and, and laughter and, and joy in the experience of playing the game, you know? And I realized that video games, unlike alcohol and drugs, I didn't use video games to escape. I didn't use video games to numb any emotions. Uh, video games for me was a place of expression was this place of, of joy and wonder and curiosity to channel a little bit of my competitive spirit. Um, I enjoyed playing the game more than I enjoyed winning the game. You know, winning the game was, was a fun climax, but I knew that playing the game was, was where it was at, you know? Yeah. And I also love the sense of community that gaming can, can brought me because I would invite my friends over or <laughs> I'd go over to my friend's house and we'd play GoldenEye or whatever, and we just have a really good time. So I knew in that moment that I, like, like my spirituality, I need to find a way to hold this and never let it go again. I let it go a lot. I let it go in my twenties because I allowed a lot of programs, external programs to dictate, like you're an entrepreneur. You don't have time for video games. You know, the wingman is too cool to play video games. Like there are all these stories that other people said that I adopted as my own. And I shut video games out for my life for a better part of a decade. And so I knew that I couldn't do that. And so I looked for a program that I could create that could allow me to keep video games in my life. And I went back to when I was in college, one of the dreams that I had was actually to, to be a professional like video game player, like a gamer, professional gamer. And so, okay. <laughs> so I decided that I'm going to pursue it. Like I'm going to go and try to be a semi-professional esports athlete. You know, that's the, that's the term these days, right? Really? So- <laughs> you can actually, you, there's actually, you can actually have a job as a professional gamer and get paid oh, yeah. for it? Oh, 100%. The esports industry is one of the biggest growing industries in the world. I mean, I think right now the market cap is like 20 billion. What? It's, it's oh, absolutely insane. Um, wow. And there are players who make hundreds of thousands uh, playing video games. There are uh, gamers who leverage YouTube to make mm-hmm. millions. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's an absolutely amazing thing. Um, and so I was like, all right, I'm going to go for it. So I picked a game. And I trained and I targeted one tournament. It was a Red Bull sponsored tournament up in uh, Orange County. And I remember going to this arena and I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the promised land, surrounded by my people. <laughs> you know, like I, just, I, I just immediately connected and I didn't know anyone there. But, and I vibed with everyone, you know, mm-hmm. and I just talked. I was myself. I got to see other people play. People gave me tips. And I was such a new person to this, to this scene that I didn't even have the right controller to play in the tournament. I had to borrow someone else's controller. Wow. And, you know, I just had a blast. And the results were great. Like, I came in uh, 33rd out of almost 120 players, which is awesome for a first-timer, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I was really proud of myself. But more importantly, I had so much fun. I, mm-hmm. I, it was unlike anything I had ever experienced. I remember sitting there kind of watching things unfold. And I'm like, man, I wonder if I can make life like this. What if life was like this? Because I enjoyed the whole process from making the decision to compete. I enjoyed the process of training. I enjoyed the process of, of, of competing, you know? And life doesn't always have to be like that. But what if I could find ways to do that? And I went back and I went through my journal of all the 
transformational things that I've learned and experienced in my life. And I was like, what if I just made this a program? Mm -hmm. And I just put a game design, you know, using that college degree that I earned, right? Like, <laughs> put, a, put a game design over it and allow life to be a game, you know? And I thought about the first game I ever played. It was Super Mario Brothers. And yeah, I remember, me too. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you know how, like, when you're on your last life, and the, the timer's going down. It's just like this stress-induced <laughs> panic experience because you're trying to not die, but you're also trying to get to the end. So that's, I feel like that's a great analogy for life. I feel like so many people are just running through life with such scarcity, right? Mm -hmm. But scarcity plus urgency is, is creates a very stress-induced, well, like light way of being, you know? Right. And it's not fun. It really is not fun. <laughs> Um, to have to live that that the end game, if you get to the end of the level, yeah, that part's fun, but the experience itself is not fun. That's probably but, why I know yeah. I never was good at playing video games because it was so um anxiety producing. Yeah. Yeah. Then you know? I was like, I can't handle this. <laughs> <laughs> and then something magical happens when you get the first green mushroom, right? The first green mushroom, mm -hmm. that, that one up, the extra life, right? All yeah. of a sudden you're like, yeah. Yeah, right. Like I can, I can chill now. I can take my time. I can explore. I can take risks and face challenges because you know that if you were to make a mistake and Mario dies, you don't see that as failure. You now you see that as feedback because you will play that level again and now know how to how to pass it or at least right. have a willingness to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what life is. Life is not about success and failure. You know, uh, to me, I don't believe failure really exists unless you stop playing the game, right? It's just feedback that you get to determine how to go after it again. Because you got to remember, games are designed for you. It's not about you winning. Games were not designed for you to win. Games were designed for you to have fun. And winning becomes a byproduct of you playing the game, you know? And yeah. I just realized that, wow, like that's an effect, right? When you get that extra life, like that was my effect when I raised my hand and said, I need help. That was the effect that I had when I had my higher power come in and, and remove that obsession to escape from me. You know, that was the, high, the, the extra life I got when I finally decided, okay, like I need a spiritual program, right? I've had extra lives. These green mushrooms show up in my life throughout my life. And it's allowed me to, live my life not with scarcity but in in, a, in abundance in the you know in in the journey towards prosperity i can take my time i can explore i can wonder i can take risks i can receive feedback and i can do it over and over and over again until i get it right and i can enjoy this whole process yeah right like i don't have to go through adversity and hate it like I could actually go through challenges in my life and enjoy the process of me getting better, becoming closer to my highest self. And that's when I knew that my higher power put me through this whole dark period to allow me to have this message to share. Because I know that there's people who need to look like us, have mm -hmm. this type of message to share. So other people who look like us can be like, wow, like I didn't even know that was even possible because I didn't come from a place where that was even in the conversation. I didn't even come right. from a place where those type of words were used. And, yeah. go, and to tie it up, you know, because I know I've been talking a lot. I just really wanted to share <laughs> this story. But to tie it up. It's okay. Uh, um, I remember going to my first recovery meeting. And uh, I was at that moment, like, I think I was three days sober. I was a shell of myself. And I just, I didn't know anyone in the rooms, obviously. And I just said, I don't know what to do. I'm like crying and, and I just, I didn't know what my next move is, but I know that I, I need to continue searching for support. And the people who came up to me had so such unconditional love and acceptance of me. And they said, you're going to be okay. It's all good. You're in the right place. And this was the same unconditional love and acceptance that I was looking for my whole life. Mm -hmm. You know, back when I was a little kid being hung up on the Coke, you know, you know on the coat rack. Um, being left to hang, you know, and, and I was looking for that. And I realized in that moment that by sharing my experience, sharing what's going on with me, that was my first real conscious practice of self-love. Mm -hmm. So now anytime I do a podcast, anytime I do a video on YouTube or I post on social media or I share with my daughter, or I talk to my wife or I talk to my friends, for me, 
I'm getting emotional even saying it, like talk, like feeling it because I feel it. Anytime I share myself with someone else, that to me is a quintessential form of self-love. And I'll never stop because that gets to be my reminder of how much I actually unconditionally love and accept who I am, past, present, and future. So, um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing all of that. You know, as I was listening to you, it's amazing because I feel like so much of your story I can relate to. That was um, my first generation um, immigrant parents, all of that, and being bullied. And and it's just so crazy because when we have these emotional pains, we they feel so isolating. Yeah. And it's so beautiful to hear us, other people share their pain because then you can be like, oh, yeah, I went through that, too. I'm not alone in these experiences. And I love the analogy that you're using that life is a game because it is. And it's really about shifting that mindset of just being like, okay, this is happening to me. How can I make a different choice? How can I be, stay positive essentially? Yeah. Um, Because it's so easy to go into that victim space, especially at least for me, I can speak for myself when you grew up with that energy of, blame and mm-hmm. victimhood that's kind of the only language i knew i had to teach myself yeah a different way of thinking and getting spiritual help i think if i didn't have that i know i would not be alive right yeah, now definitely we definitely would not be having this conversation right yeah now, i'd be i'd be know, gone for sure and, and i think you highlighted a really important part you know when it, oftentimes it's the language that we use and how we talk to ourselves that becomes, you know, the the most dangerous weapon or the most vital gift, right? And so even something as simple as saying, like, when something happens to you, I used to say that a lot, right? And when something happens to you, that's, that is like picturesque victimhood, right? Right? Because you're almost saying, like, I had no control over it, or, you know, so it happened to me, you know, like, woe is me, you know, and this is my experience, right? It doesn't always have to be that way for everyone. But when I changed it to, this is happening for me. Yeah. You know, it made me shift my perspective from victimhood to, well, what's here for me? What am I supposed to learn here? What is, what is my higher power trying to have me see? And I also know that my higher power, (laughs) my, my God and my understanding will play this, sequence on repeat until you get it until (laughs) Until, you get it until i get it right and it's just like that loop in mario right Mm -hmm. we all have that game we all have that game where we hit that you know difficult stage and no matter how many lives we have we keep losing them because we keep making the same mistake right but then we figure it out right and then we're able to Mm -hmm. move on to that next part that is exactly what you know life life is about you know and and our growth is the driving force that I feel like, you know, human growth is the blood um, of our human existence, you know, and the heart that pumps that blood is our openness and our willingness to new ideas and experiences that can help that growth. Yeah. And um, it's like that hamster, the hamster wheel over and over. And I, and I feel like that's where the unconditional love really can help pull you Mm -hmm. out of that space. And it's that's where I feel like if people don't experience that in some form of a friend, loved ones, family, it really makes life difficult. And I say that and I know some people are listening to that and like, well, I've never experienced unconditional love. And I want to say, yes, you have. You mm-hmm. just haven't been able to receive it. Yeah. Because I feel like everyone has experienced those amazing angels. And then sometimes it's a stranger. Sometimes it's somebody you don't know. You go to a meeting, like you just mentioned, and somebody was so kind to you. It doesn't always come in ways that we can always recognize. Yeah. And I think that's why having the willingness and the openness allows that love to come into your life to actually help you. Because yeah. it's impossible to do it by yourself. Yeah. You know, I think that what... What those people did that day was gave it gave me permission, right? It gave me permission. They gave me permission to be open. It gave me permission to be willing. It gave me the love and acceptance could look like, right? Like I had my own version of that, mm-hmm. and it didn't lead me in a, in a direction that made me feel loved or 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 appreciated or significant or desired, you know. 
but the way they expressed it, I did. So there was something about that that I wanted to look into more and see how I can do that for myself, you know? Yeah. And I found that when I got to a place, because it still took time, it still took time for me to get to a place where I unconditionally loved, to, you know, where I got to a place where I unconditionally loved and accepted myself, that was when everything opened up for me in terms of my connection to other people. Mm-hmm. Because then I became a free, I became a free man. Yeah. Right? I got to go anywhere, be with anyone and be able to be myself and not care about uh, what others were, were thinking of me, you know? Mm-hmm. And that became a natural filter of how I got to exp- get to experience life, right? Like if people aren't vibing with me because of who I am, then I don't get to be with them anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, right? We get, to, we get to design and play our own game, right? And I always tell people, if you're hustling and you feel like you're super successful and you're not happy, you're playing someone else's game. Someone else is happy based on your efforts and your, and your output. Like, that's not how we get to live life, you know? We get to be happy and successful. Those two can coexist. We don't need to sacrifice one for the other. And, that was, and that's been a program that's been taught to us in various forms, whether it's been passed on by our parents, whether it's what we experience in the media, it's what we're taught in, in, in institutional education, right? Like there's so many places where we're kind of put on like success is this pedestal. And then when we get there, it opens up opportunities. And there's some truth to that, mm-hmm. but at what cost, you know, yeah. it nearly cost me my life. So I'm not willing to make that mistake again. I'd rather be happy and unsuccessful. But even as I say that, I think that's an absolute joke because right. I know that if I am happy, my success, success. is guaranteed. Right. It just is. Because winning becomes a byproduct of playing the game, you know? Love it. Well, let's get into some (laughs) infinite love questions. Yes. So the first one is, how do you express love in your work? Oh, oh, it's so good. So, man, let me count the ways. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's still a practice for me because I'm always coming across new opportunities for me to express that. But I always find that Rituals and practices are the forms of, of, of love for me when it comes to anything that I do, but particularly in my work. So I look at what's important to me. You know, I look at my priorities and what's important to me. I look at the fun factor. Am I going to enjoy these things? And if I see that I am not able to enjoy these things, I then think about how can I make them fun? And then when I ask that question, it always drops me into what I normally do to treat myself, whether it's playing music, maybe it's having a, a, a coffee, uh, maybe it's having a little bit of like a treat for me, like a food or a pastry or something like that. Maybe it's not even working right now. Maybe it's going to play with my daughter 15 minutes and, and, and kind of get the blood flowing in a different way so my creative expression gets to come out. But I always think about fun being the gateway to opening up love for me. You know, it, it just, I think fun just alters my nervous system and my my physical chemical you know um what do you call it my chemical makeup you know biochemistry yeah you know Mm -hmm. and then it just opens up my heart and all of a sudden now my consciousness expands you know and so for me fun is love that's the way I, i see it and so whenever i think about my work and i'm fortunate enough because as a playfulness coach my work is all about play, <laughs> you know? But it doesn't mean everything that I do in my work is considered play, right? I right. got to market myself. I got to mm-hmm. write, I got to create content. I got to manage the finances of, of the business and with my family. Like those things yeah. can be seen as, as not fun, you know? <laughs> um, but by me allowing myself to find that fun, then it makes it easier for me to love anything that I'm doing. Right, yeah. Where has forgiveness brought more love into your life? Oh my gosh. Um, I would say most impactfully through uh, my recovery program when I uh, had to, when I got to make amends to the people that I had hurt, which included my wife and some of my good friends. Um, But what I also realized is I also had to make amends to myself. Yeah. You know, 
because I beat myself up the most. I hurt myself the most. And I'm not even talking about physically, right? Emotionally, uh, spiritually, right? I, I mean, I, I unconsciously severed a connection to my spirituality and I was hurting myself because it, it just made me this lost ship in the sea. Um, and so when it's, as soon as I got to a place where I was able to forgive myself, didn't mean that I forgot the past, just meant that I don't need to regret it anymore. And I, and I don't need to close the door on it because I need to look at it as a reminder for how I got where I am today, mm-hmm. you know? And I, have, and I get to, and because of that, I get to love that version of Thomas who was struggling and didn't know what to do, you know? Cause that's what he was looking for. He was looking for a solution and just didn't have any options. And when you're in that kind of place, you're gonna do anything and everything so you can feel safe. And that's all he wanted to, to, to experience was a little bit of safety and love. So I can hold that level of compassion for him. And that opened up the door for me to really be accepting, not just of me, but of other people. Because I've been wronged in my life, and there, I, I may I may end up being wronged in the future. Mm-hmm. And no one here is perfect, you know. And I get to love people for who they are and accept yeah. them for who they are, just the way that I did. So uh, I think forgiving myself uh, was like the biggest thing that opened up the doors for me to love more. Yeah. What is the most compassionate act someone has done for you? Hmm. I think it was that day in the, in the recovery rooms, you know, when someone just, when the people just came up and just said, you know, you're in the right place, like, come back. Um, you're going to be okay. You know, um, it, it, it's strange because maybe it was the timing. Maybe it was where my energy was. And that at that time, but I never heard it like that. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly never felt it like that before where, I felt so much compassion, you know, like I have, I had, I had a few friends in my life at the time and maybe I just wasn't in a position to feel it or hear it from them. But I think because it was the first time experiencing something completely judgment-free, you know, where I just kind of shared that how much I effed up in my life <laughs> and to have yeah. someone uh, kind of come around and, and, and just say, I see you, you know, I see you. And you're still love and you're still loved, you know, that, that to me was, I'd never felt anything like that before. It's beautiful. What do you love most about your life? <laughs> um, my daughter, you know, um, everything about, about her, uh, particularly the fact that because I, I have my own business, I have the flexibility to spend a lot of time with her. You know, I, since being sober, um, I've been able to be obviously more present and active um, as a dad in a way that I wasn't able to before. And so I've had the fortunate, I had the good fortune to have really witnessed her growth throughout this entire time. And I know that it's, it's not common. I know that it's not common for particularly dads to witness growth during the early stages of, of their, their children's lives due to responsibilities and, and the kind of the nature of how they're living their lives. Um, and so for me, I don't take it for granted, you know, like I look forward to seeing her come back from school or, you know, when she's done spending time with her mom. And so her mom can you know get to work and I can spend time with her. Like I, I, I get so excited about that, you know? And so, she, yeah, she, yeah. I think about like, if there's a few things that I, I would not be willing to give up, it would definitely be like my sobriety, my, you know, my spirituality, and definitely like my connection with my daughter, mm-hmm. you know, like that to me is what I love the most about my life. Yeah. How do you feel you receive love? It's interesting. I had a, I had a conversation about this with, with one of my good friends last night and we were talking about love languages and I was kind of thinking about, Oh, like, what's my love language? You know? And I was like, Oh, like definitely like words of affirmation and, and acts of, of service for sure. You know? Um, I like, I think also for me, if there was like a third one, I don't know if it's in the, in the book or categorized this way, but I like to receive love when people hold space for me, 
Mm. You know, when they hold space for me in a way that's judgment free mm -hmm. and I get to just fully express myself, yeah. even if my thoughts or my feelings are even incomplete. I think sometimes we, I'll speak for myself, like sometimes there can be pressure for me and my thoughts to be complete. They have to be complete in order for, for me to feel comfortable sharing them. And I don't think that at times, if you're confused or you're unsure, or if you're in internal conflict, like that's the time where you should be sharing and expressing yourself the most. Because I think when you do that, the, the solution or the completeness comes together, it unfolds, you know? And so being able to have a space where someone can hold that while you figure yourself out, you know, that to me, I feel like is like a way that I get to receive love, you know, and it's, and it's uncommon, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's very challenging, you know, um, for someone to do, yeah. you know? Yeah. They have, you have to be with someone that's on a healing journey themselves, because in order to hold space for someone else and not be judgmental, you have to have worked and seen your own level of darkness mm -hmm. to understand that somebody's going through something and to be able to sit in that pain with somebody else. Because yeah. most of the time when someone else is in pain, most of us are like, okay, well, do you want to, you want like, uh, 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 you, you try to like <laughs> get out of the situation, right? Yeah. Or try to uh, fix it. Or try to fix it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I feel like I, I know exactly what you're saying. And it's true. Like to have people like that in your life is a blessing and such a miracle because yeah. it's not a very common quality because a lot of most people have a hard time dealing with other people's pain yeah and so if you have that person in your life like never try your hardest not to let them go as long as they're not toxic like try to try your hardest to not let them go because that that kind of soulful relationship mm -hmm. is the kind of relationship that can really allow you to live a long-lasting you know fulfilling, fulfilling life. life yeah mm -hmm. yeah true i feel blessed to have people like that yeah and I feel like I work to be that, like what mm -hmm. you just said, to be that person for others, because um, it's important for people to feel seen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and I want people to to have the opportunity to be seen. That was one of my one of my fears that I realized. I was afraid of being seen because I thought if I was seen, literally, this was the story in my head that I'd be killed. And oh, I don't yeah, know if that was because that was from yeah. ancestral. Of course. Yes. You know yeah, I mean? no, I had the same. I <laughs> swear to you, I had the same thought. Same thought. Yeah. Like, I was like, if, if I get really seen, I'm going to get killed. I mean, it's just like, I don't know if it's like a black story. I'm sure other races have yeah. that. But for me, it felt very, very like my life is going to be threatened. I in that or I'm going to be crucified. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus. Right? Like, it was like, I'm going to be crucified. Yeah. And, and, I, and actually, now as I'm saying it, it feels like an ancestral, yeah. uh, you know, trauma. It you is. Know? It, it does feel sure. like that, mm -hmm. you know? And so mm -hmm. it's still a practice. Like, I'm not perfect, yeah. but I, I do my best to make progress by showing up on podcasts like these to allow myself mm -hmm. to be seen and vulnerable. Because I know it's important for other people to want us to see what that experience is like so they can have an idea of how they can do the same for themselves. I think it's just so important. You know, when you, and you, and you and I, I feel like you, you, you know, this too, when you allow yourself to be seen, that's when your real power comes right? through, yeah. you know, and then that's where people can really connect you. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, yeah. And they can feel like, wow, I can connect myself mm -hmm. and they get to, they get to experience new avenues of themselves yeah. that they don't normally have access to because it's usually so shielded. Mm -hmm. So it takes brave people that want to do this work so other people can also be able to experience themselves. Yeah. 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 I, um, one thing, I, one thing I'll, I'll quickly share is I was thinking about back in the days when I was working as the professional wingman and I would go to these bars and you know, I work with men and women, but I usually, you know, take men out to the bars to meet women and they'd be like so nervous, right. They'd have all this anxiety and they're like, how do I have the confidence to approach someone? And I'm like, well, confidence doesn't come that way, right? Like confidence comes as a result of you taking action, but it never is a requirement, right? And so I started to think about like, where, where does it come from, right? And so I thought about it as two ends of the spectrum. So if you start at like taking action, right? Being kind of the, 
the right side of the spectrum and then the confidence happens, the more you do that part of the process, then your confidence turns into belief, turns into faith. But then if you go on the other end of the spectrum, well, what do you need to get to take action if you if it's not confidence? Well, like you said, there's courage, right? You need to get courage. Well, then how do you get courage? Where does courage come from, right? It comes from faith. I think to me, it begins and ends with faith, you know? And, and yeah. I think that just starts to open up, whether, whether you believe in a higher power or not. Even if it's even if you're still if you decide you self will is where you're at and that's fine, still faith in yourself, right? Like it starts and ends with with faith when it comes to wanting to change your life for the better, yeah. you know? Yeah, totally. Well, I've loved this conversation so much. Where can mm-hmm. people connect with you and find your information on the internets? Yes, and so um, two things. One is. I wrote a book. It's called The One-Up Effect. Um, it'll be published by Morgan James either later at the end of this year or early 2023. But you can go ahead and pre-order a copy, see what it's about. You can go to oneupeffect.com. So that's number one, upeffect.com. And then if you want to learn more about me and even want to you know, spend some time talking with me about how playfulness can play a vital role into your life, you know, the way I see playfulness is as a, um, it's a form of mindfulness. You know, and I think if you can incorporate playness, playfulness into your life, it can be a huge influence on your overall well-being in all areas of your life. And so if you want to learn more about that, you can go to thomasedwardsjr.com slash podcast, and you can learn more about that. Nice. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure talking with, with you, Tom, Thomas, today. Same. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me again. Yeah. Sending you lots of love. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and tune in on Tuesdays for new episodes. For more information about me, please follow me on Instagram at Corinne J. Camara and my website, CorinneCamara.com. Sending you lots of infinite love.